Last week we started a series of, of uh, studies in the book of Psalms and, and just looking at certain specific Psalms. And we, it's just a, a series called Psalms for Supernatural Living. And uh, t- tonight I want to do another Psalm. You know, last week we, we learned uh, from Psalm 103 that there is there's power when we praise God in the midst of terrible circumstances. So I hope you've been doing that this week, that uh, in the middle of things, not thanking him for what happens, but thanking him in spite of that and giving him praise no matter what's going on in your life. I hope, hope you've been able to do that this week. And today I want to do, what I want to do is I want to give you just sort of a companion piece to Psalm 103, and that's Psalm 16. You know, uh, and as I said last time, I believe a lot of these psalms come to life for us when we, whenever it's possible, when we juxtapose the life of King David over the psalm. Now, he didn't write all the psalms, but he wrote most of them. And and there are some psalms that we know the context um, of his life in, in the moment when he produced them, like Psalm 51, for example. We know that that was produced during the time when uh, David's adultery with Bathsheba and, and his murder of, of, his, of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Uh, when all that became public knowledge, then he wrote Psalm 51 as a, as a psalm of repentance and, and asking God to forgive him. But, but there are other psalms we, we don't know. We don't know the context. No one really knows. Psalm 103 was one of those. And the same is true of Psalm 16. Now, now last week I shared that Psalm 103 is usually understood to be a psalm that was produced during the very best time of David's life. Uh, and, and in the middle of the, of the, the goodness of God, it's, it's got him saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And that, and that David was thrilled in some great moment of his life and therefore blessing God. But for the sake of seeing the psalm in a fresh new way, we, we sort of turn that psalm upside down. And, uh, and instead of that way, we looked at, the, at Psalm 103 as, as if David was praising God as an act of will when praise made absolutely no sense at all. And we talked about David at perhaps the, the worst moment of his life, at some low ebb of, of life where, where David was alone. He was an outlaw. He was an exile. And he, and he began to praise God when it made no sense to praise God. Now, Psalm 16 it's generally understood and taught to be a psalm of David that he wrote for protection uh, during one of the worst moments of his life. Uh, David, surrounded by his enemies or, or, or dealing with some major problem in his life or some terrible season in his life, that David is praying that God will uh, arise and God will protect him in the middle of all that. But today, again, just for the sake of being able to see that psalm in a little bit of a different way, let's turn it upside down from that. And and so before we read it, let's just kind of set up a possible scenario for David. Last week, we left David in the cave of Adullam. And, and when we said that it was the worst moment of his life, and, 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 and in that time, when he was living there in exile, God began to bring David people that, that God would use to serve as David's closest associates for the rest of his life and in, the, in the middle of this terrible time and for the rest of his life. And, and there at the cave of Adullam, a, a, a really a motley crew began to gather around David. 
They're, I mean, tax dodgers and, and outlaws and, and brigands and men who, who had no home and men who had no, no common loyalty. And, and they all started coming out to David, those that were, uh, that were uh, unhappy with the circumstances in, of the nation and were somehow uh, uh, d- disappointed with life. And, and, and so they all went out to David and, and they formed this this lethal, dangerous, light cavalry unit of, of 600 men. And this, this cavalry unit had no loyalty to King Saul. They had no loyalty to Israel. They had no tribal loyal, loyalties at all. David was their tribe. David was their nation. David was their, their king. David was their leader. And their loyalty was to David himself. And over time, David fashioned this this group of ragtag men into a powerful guerrilla unit. Now, if you remember, they began to run a kind of a protection racket. Uh, now, I know that sounds like a terrible thing to say about King David, but it's essentially, that's what it was. Uh, they would hang out in some area. They would sort of patrol the area, and they would make sure that, that the farmers and the shepherds of that area, particularly if they were Israeli people, that they were all protected and then he would later go to that farmer or he would go to that, that, the sheep owner or whatever in, in that area. And, and he would say, look, there are some really bad people out there. And uh, during this whole time, there has no harm that has, there has been no harm that has come to you. And, uh, and listen, they wanted to burn down your barns. They wanted to raid. They wanted to kill. They wanted all these to do all these things. But, uh, but we protected you. And so now... Just want you to know we could sure use some provisions. You know, if you could give us some food, some some supplies. Well, during that time, there's a great story about a man named Nabal, but we don't have time to talk about that today. But but during that whole time period, David's troops just continued to develop this fierce loyalty to David. And then they became mercenaries. They they hired themselves out to the Philistines and and while they were doing that, they ran this ruse on the Philistines. They, they convinced the Philistines that they were raiding uh, into Israel. However, what they were actually doing, they were, instead of going north to raid Israel, they were going south and they were raiding uh, villages in places like Geshur and, and Amalek. And, and so they would invade a village and they would kill everybody. Now, that's just really hard for us to understand with our modern sensibilities, but but they did that because they, they couldn't leave any witnesses. They, they had to make sure that no one escaped to tell the king of the Philistines what they were doing and where they had raided. And so they would do this and they would gather all the plunder and all the loot and they would take all of that loot back to the king of the Philistines and they would say, look, we raided this village up in Israel and we brought all this back for you. And, they, and, they were, and in doing that, they were... They were uh, uh, cultivating favor with the Philistines and making them think that they were on the, their side because the Philistines and the Israelites were, were enemies, constant enemies. And so the king of the Philistines was thinking to himself, if David's doing this, there's no way he can ever go back to Israel. So he felt comfortable having David uh, serve him as a mercenary. But, but, but they, so they cultivated this favor with the Philistines and, and yet because they never raided, actually raided into Israel, they, they did not destroy their reputation among the, the Israelites. In fact, if anything, David's reputation grew and he, he became sort of this, this mythic legendary figure that floated around the, the, the fringes of the Israeli mind. Well, later... 
when Israel was at war with the Philistines, the war with the Philistines went badly and King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed. And, and on the heels of that, every man went back to his tent. The army was scattered. The, the government collapsed. The economy was in ruin. And, and they, the people of Israel began to say, what are we going to do now? The, their leader was gone. Their government was, had no power. There was no government anymore because Saul was the government. And they said, what are we going to do now? What do we do? And so somebody said, you know, I, do you remember hearing a, about this young man named David, the, the son of Jesse? Uh, I heard that Samuel anointed him as king of Israel, even while Saul, Saul was still alive. Uh, and if you remember, he's the one that actually killed Goliath. Where is he now? And so upon the heels of that, the tribe of Judah, they come to David and they say, we want you to be our king. And he became the king of the tribe of Judah, the leader of that tribe. And it was very shortly after that, that all of the tribes of Israel came together and they crowned David as their king. So, so David unified the 12 tribes and he, then he moved the military capital of the nation uh, of, of Israel from Baal Judah where he was living and he, and he moved it down to the old Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem. And there, David becomes the center of Israeli life. He, he is the absolute monarch. He is the unquestioned king over Israel. He, his word has the power of life and death. His, he makes law with his words by just saying something. David is hero. He is the theological leader, the military leader, the economic leader, the social leader, the political leader. And the nation then moves in, in, into a time of unparalleled, unprecedented prosperity. I mean, David wins every military campaign to which he puts his hand. And I mean, what about the 600 that were following him? Uh, it, well, they became David's palace guard. They totally loyal and committed to David. They became the elite troops in David's army. Well, one night with all of this wonderful thing, these wonderful things that are going on, I just picture in my mind, David wakes up in the middle of the night and goes down to the palace into the main central receiving room. And it's lonely. The halls are deserted. Everybody's in bed standing by the, Marble by each one of the marble columns is one of his 600 who will kill or die for him just at the snap of a finger. Dangerous men, but, but totally committed to David. He stands on a balcony that overlooks the city and he, he looks out and he sees the last dying lights that, that, that wink up at him and it reminds him of his absolute authority. He, he looks over all of his stables and with hundreds and hundreds of the best horses in all of the Middle East. And he, he, he numbers his divisions and his battalions and his army. And he, he reminds himself that he owns one of the most beautiful houses ever built in the history of Israel. He, he's, he's prosperous. He's powerful. He's at the peak of his military and his political career. Then he goes into the throne room and he drapes the purple robe of royalty about his shoulders and places the gold crown that's encrusted with rubies and amethyst on his head, picks up the golden scepter of authority, holds it in his left hand, and he places his right hand on the, on the sword with which he had killed Goliath, the symbol of his military might. And then he lays all of those things aside and he reaches over behind the throne 
And he picks up an old battered guitar. And from somewhere deep in his spirit, he begins to sing Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O, o my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips, O Lord. You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who's given me good, who's given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of light. Excuse me, the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, I see here a man seeing himself at the, at the peak of his career with the, the unsearchable possibilities of the prosperity in which he finds himself. And he is perusing his life and he is crying for the preservation of God. Let, let me put it to you like this. If you were the devil and you said, I'm going to completely destroy a man. I'm going to corrupt him. I'm going to pollute him. I'm going to destroy his marriage. I'm going to ruin his family. I'm going to drag him away from God, and I'm going to drag him into pride, and I'm going to drag him into arrogance, and I'm going to drag him into every heinous sin known to man. I'm determined to destroy this man, and you have two choices. You only have two ways in which you can destroy him. You can bring him into abject poverty or you can give him unsearchable riches. I mean, millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. Now, now I'm not saying that those are the only tools that Satan has, but for this scenario, I'm just saying that if those were the only two possibilities that you could choose from, you can either break him with poverty or you can give him unsearchable wealth. I mean, the kind of wealth that makes... Bill Gates blushed like a pauper. Which would you choose? Which would you choose if you were the devil? Well, you know, there is a danger in poverty that a man may rise up and curse God in bitterness. There is that danger. However, the greater danger, I believe, is that in the presence of plenty, the greater danger is that a man will forget his need of God. You know, you know Paul said in Philippians 4.12, he said, I know both how to face humble circumstances and how to have abundance. Listen, we know that there, there are going to be times when each of us will have abundance, but there will also be times when each of us will face humble circumstances. In other words, Paul is saying, I have figured out a way to go through the, the experiences of these two extremes of life without having them destroy me or separate me from God. So, how can a man walk through both great need and great wealth and not lose your soul? Well, you handle them both the same way. The, the wonderful thing about it is that, that once you figure out how to handle great poverty, then you've also figured out the way to handle great abundance. The, the person that will be destroyed by poverty is also the same person that will be destroyed by abundance. 
you see, see, we have this thought in our minds that, that the only person that ever uh, uh, moves and lives with that, that can be covetous or greedy is a rich man. Now, I don't know, wh- I don't know where we got that idea, the, you know. But the truth is, the greatest coveting and greed and envy and bitterness over money is really among those with less. Let me let me give you this as an example. There, there are two men driving down the road. One one guy is driving a, his paid for Porsche. And the other guy is driving his old, beat-up 1984 Chevrolet on which somehow or another he still has 13 payments that he's got to make. And they meet each other at a stoplight. And and do you do you think that the guy in the Porsche looks over at the man in the Chevy and he says to him, look at him. Look at him. He thinks he's so much better than I am. Look at him driving that old, beat-up Chevy. He just thinks he's so spiritual, just makes me sick. no. Is that how it works? I don't think so. Instead, the guy in the Chevy says, look at that guy over there in that Porsche. He's looking down on me. Now, he may not be. He may be, but he may not be at all. But that's what we project over onto him. And nevertheless, the man who learns how to be, the child of, be a child of God in the Chevy on which he owes more than it's, than it's worth the moment he drove it off the lot is the same as the is, is the. Uh, as the man who learns how to walk through plenty. The, 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 when you learn to do that, listen, it, it, this is how you do it. You have to remember this. My value as a human being is neither enhanced nor diminished by what I own. I, I, I'm not who I am because of the label on my clothes. There, there's nothing sinful about wearing expensive suits. There's nothing sinful about driving a nice car. There's nothing sinful about wearing cheap suits. There's, there's nothing sinful about driving around in a junker. Uh, you know, neither of those two extremes in, in life expresses my value as a human being. There, there's nothing wrong with having abundance. However, here's the thing. If in abundance, I say to myself, I have to have this. I must have this. This is a non-negotiable in my life. Then in that moment, I have forgotten the prayer of David, preserve me, O God. See, David looks at all that he has, all the wealth, all the success, all the popularity, all the power. And he says, God, this could ruin me. Preserve me, O God. Listen, we need to hear it in business. We need to hear it in politics. We need to hear that in ministry. I mean, how many ministries have we seen destroyed because they were successful and they, had, uh, they, they became wealthy? Listen, if the Lord blesses you with untold wealth, fine. That's wonderful. Thank God. Receive the blessings of God without a blush. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't build a theology on it. If God has blessed you, you tell him thank you and you give away lots and use those gifts to do great things for the kingdom of God. But listen, don't, don't look to that wealth as the explanation of your value of who you are as a child of God. If your bank account is overflowing, if you're living in an abundance that that other people can't even begin to imagine, then you need to say in that moment, preserve me, oh God. Preserve me from thinking that I have to have this. Furthermore, look at what David says in verse 1. He says, for in you I put my trust. We need to hear this as a nation, especially right now. You know, we have stamped in God we trust on our 
currency, uh, but it, is, it has become a hollow lie. It, it, it has become a national sham. It, it's a charade. In, in what do we trust? Well, we trust in our education. We trust in our military might. We trust in the, our ability to negotiate across the tables of diplomacy. We trust in our leaders. We trust in our government. We trust in man. But, but listen to this. The, the last verse of the Bible says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with, with you all. Amen. And the very first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there are 35,000 verses between those two verses. So if you divide that number by two, the, do you know what the middle verse of the Bible is? The middle verse of the Bible says, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. So between the creation of the universe by God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is the admonishment to, to, for us to remember, don't put your trust in people only put your trust in God. Now listen, I would like to think, I don't know, I have no way of knowing, but I would like to think that the president in the, in the dead of night gets up and, and goes into the Oval Office and he falls on, a, on his face before God and says, preserve me, O God. Listen, if our hope for national, national security is in armies and, and airplanes and missiles and ships and tanks, then, then we're undone. We are doomed if that's our, ho our hope for national security because that's not our, our, our ultimate confidence. Our ultimate confidence as a nation must be in the God who can stand the waters of the Jordan on end and can part the, the waters of the Red Sea. And if that's not where our confidence lies, then we're doomed. And there's nothing that can save us. If, if our trust is in God, then we will be preserved. However, if our trust is in the flesh, if our trust is in our armies, if our trust is in our wealth, if our trust is in our education, then we're doomed. You know, you know in, in, the, in the midst of this crisis caused by COVID-19, you know, I, I want you to know I'm so thankful for all of the work of the doctors and nurses and the medical professionals. I'm so thankful for all the work of the scientists that are working so hard to develop a vaccine and to find a way to treat the, those that are already infected. I'm so grateful for what all of the governmental leaders are doing from the federal government all the way down to local government. But, but do you know what we really need? What we really need is a nationwide call from the Oval Office for prayer. What we really need is for the members of Congress to fall on their faces before God and stop all the politicking and all the arguing and all the wrangling and say, Oh God, in you do we put our trust. You know, I believe that in the best moments of our lives, it's in those moments that we better remind ourselves that the plan is nothing without God, that the, the, the program is nothing without God, the preacher is nothing without God, the army is useless without God. In you alone do I put my trust. Well, the last part of, of verse 2, it says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. He's saying, I, I don't deserve to stand where I'm standing on my own righteousness. It's a statement of both theological and spiritual humility. In other words, he, he's saying, God, I don't have all this blessing in my life because I deserve it. And we have to say to ourselves, Lord, I have these blessings because you are a good and a sovereign God and you have seen fit to bless me. Listen, if you're blessed, rejoice. However, 
Don't build it into a spiritual law that says you're blessed because you said it right or because you confessed it right or you did something to make it happen. Because if you do, then inevitably what will happen is you will work backwards and you will, it will lead you to a place of saying, I got this because I did it right. I finally got what's coming to me because I did it right. Man, I'm telling you, I don't want what's coming to me. I don't want what I deserve. If we get what's coming to us, then we're all going to hell. No, I want grace, don't you? David says, I don't have all this because there's something wonderful about me. I don't have all of this because I have accomplished anything at all in my life. In the NIV, this verse says, apart from you, I have no good thing. He's saying, you have done it all, God. You're the God of grace. I thank you. I can't explain it and I don't deserve it. He's not standing in his own righteousness and saying, I got what I deserved. He's standing in humility before the God of grace. Look look at verse three. He says, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David says, I I don't deserve to reach up to you in my righteousness and say, I finally got what I deserve. He he says, in humility, I'm blessed beyond measure, uh, but Lord, I thank you for the righteous people who love you and are probably even better than I am. You know, one of the greatest riches in my life has been the people that I have met over the years that truly love Jesus. That's the greatest treasure in my life. You know, I've met so many people that are so much better Christians than I am, you know, and I would say that's especially true of many of the the Christians that I've met when I've traveled in other nations and uh, on missions trips and, and, and met many of the spiritual leaders in those places. They're, uh, they're just amazing, amazing people, and it's a joy to meet them. I, Dr. Mark Rutland, a man who I've learned so much from, has been sort of a long-distance mentor, so to speak. But he, he was in a hotel in Bombay, India, with the India director from the Trinity Foundation, which is a missions organization. And, and uh, they were in there, and they were sharing a hotel room, and and this man came out of the, the bathroom. He, he, he had gotten out of the shower and he had a towel around his waist. And as he walked out, Dr. Rutland noticed that he had these horrible, massive white scars all over his knees. And, and they just looked terrible. And, and Dr. Rutland looked at him and, he's, and he said, oh, what happened to your knees? Were, were you in a fire or something? And, and he said, oh, no, Brother Mark, those, those are just calluses from prayer. I hear that and I think I'm not even worthy to to untie his shoes. You know, it's it's in those humbling events that, that, that you can get in touch with the reality of God's grace in your life. God, I thank you for blessing me. I thank you for prospering me. But oh God, I love your people. Oh God, I, I, I take delight in being with your saints. That's part of what makes this whole thing with the COVID-19 virus so hard because I miss you and I can't wait to see you again in person. I can't wait to the day when we're ready to gather together. It's going to be amazing. I'm telling you, church is going to be lit that day. (laughs) Well, look at what David says, verse four. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. 
Oh, you know, if only David's son Solomon had read this verse. If he had paid attention to this. Because Solomon, Solomon is one of the most tragic figures in the entire Bible. I, I Honestly, I find Solomon inexplicable. God blessed him with wisdom. God blessed him with great power. God blessed him with great wealth. God, God had placed him in the, uh, in the greatest, most prosperous time of any king in the history of Israel. And, and he lost his hold on, hold on God through what? He lost it through, through brazen, blatant idolatry, worshiping other gods. Uh, uh, after all that God had given to him, all the blessing, all the wisdom, all the power, all the, the riches, he fell to the most, most blasphemous kind of idolatry. And as far as we know, he died as an idolater. David says, oh God, I, I don't want to hasten after other gods. I, I wonder... Reading that, if, if David, at the peak of his career, I wonder if he's not thinking about his predecessor. I wonder if David is thinking about Saul, who, who at the peak of his career died in demonized depression at his own hand. Saul lost his kingdom, he, he lost his anointing, he lost his life, he lost his army, he lost his nation. Why? He lost it all because he lost his humility. He lost his hold on God. And then lost everything. And David looks around and he says, oh God, whatever happened to Saul, what, whatever went wrong, oh God, I don't want to come anywhere near any of that stuff. You know, he's really talking here about people who look for guidance and for blessing, prosperity, or for power from any other source except the, the God of sovereign grace. David said, I'm trusting in nothing else. And don't, don't you think that maybe David looked down from that throne and saw standing beside him, standing beside every pillar, one of those 600 men that would live in, or, uh, uh, and die for him at the snap of a finger and, and, and thinking to himself, God, I'm not even trusting in them. I'm not trusting in my armies. I'm not trusting in my wealth. I'm not trusting in my position. I'm not trusting in anything else. Only you, God, only you. You're the source. Now look at verses 5 and 6. Oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines, this is a very interesting passage. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Now this is one of the most provocative parts of the entire psalm. And I'll show you why. David is using language here that sounds like the division of the promised land when the Israelites first came into the promised land. When they, when they divided the promised land uh, among the tribes and among the people of Israel uh, after crossing the Jordan, the, 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 the division lines fell for some in unpleasant places. I mean, let's face it, some people got swamp land and other people got mountaintops. And, and, and some said, uh, you know, there was some jealousy uh, and envy in the, in the mix there. But some people were able to say, they said, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. And we have a good inheritance. And David says, I have a good inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You know, you might be interested in, in knowing that the same language was used in Acts chapter 8 in the New Testament. Do you remember Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8? Simon the magician, he comes to 
Peter and John at the, during the revival in the city of Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And, and, and he sees Peter and John laying hands on people. And when they lay hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit. And, and it says that he offered them money saying to them what? Saying, give me the Holy Spirit? No, that's not what he said. He said, this is what he said in Acts 8, 19. He said, give me this power also that on anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He, listen, he doesn't care whether he's filled with the Holy Spirit or not. What he wants is a position of importance in ministry. He wants a reputation as a minister of power, even if he has no power. Are you getting this? He says, he says give me the power that upon whom, whomsoever I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. Peter says to him in verse 20, your money perish with you. Now the, the original Greek says, now are you ready for this? Hold, hold on to your seats. The original Greek says, to hell with you and your money. Now, Peter may have gotten saved, but apparently he still struggled with his mouth the rest of his life. No, 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 he didn't. But as uh, he's really speaking as a matter of uh, 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 fact. He's speaking very literally here because what he's saying is into the place of damnation that is set aside for the devil and his minions, into that place of damnation, be, uh, go, uh, may your money and you go. Because Simon the magician was trusting in some other source besides the sovereign power of God. He was trusting in his wealth to get him what he wanted. And Peter said, you cannot buy the blessing of God. Then he says in verse 21, you have neither part nor portion. This does sound familiar. You have neither part nor portion. He uses the same term, terminology. You, you have neither part nor portion. You have no share in the promised land. You have no inheritance here for your heart is, is not right in the sight of God. In verse 5, though, he says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. He says, Lord, the, 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 the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. Now, that's really strange language for David. Now, why, why is that strange language? Well, it's because there is only one tribe that did not have an inheritance. Uh, they had no lines, they had no part, they had no lot, they only had the Lord. W which tribe was that? That was the tribe of Levi. Uh, the, the Lord said to the Levites, I will be your portion. They didn't have a specific area of land that was set aside for them. And here, David says, the Lord is my portion. But David is not from the tribe of Levi, David is from the tribe of Judah. So why would this king from the tribe of Judah say, the Lord is my portion? Well, I, I believe very strongly that it's because he is moving under a New Testament anointing and he's speaking on behalf of every one of us. God is my portion, he says. He is my lot. Everything I need, all that I have is God. He says, in other words, God, I thank you that I'm living in all this wealth. I thank you that I'm living with all of this power. I thank you that I have been prospered like this. But he says, Lord, if it was all gone tomorrow, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I thank you, God, for all you've given to me. But Lord, you're the portion of my inheritance. You maintain my cup. You're the one that fills me up. You own me. You bless me. I'm, I am yours and you are mine. That, and that's all I need. Now listen, it is easy to say those words when you have nothing. But when you, when you have much and you can pray that from your heart 
to say, Lord, even if I lose everything, I have you and that's all I need. If you can pray that prayer when you have much, then you're truly in touch with who God is. Now look to the next part. We're just about to finish this up. Verses 7, 8, and 9. Verse 7, I, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. So he's, he's tying back to verse 4. He says, God gives me wisdom. God is the one who guides me. I don't need the help of other gods because God is the one who, who instructs me. But look at the last part of that verse. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Now this is very, very interesting because the, the Hebrew word that's translated heart here or if you're reading from the King James, it's, it's the reins, uh, R-E-I-N-S, reins. It's a very confusing word, and it translates, the literal translation, it translates to the English word that means having to do with kidneys or renal. Are you with me? So, in other words, it, it actually says, my kidneys instruct me in the night seasons. Isn't that unusual? You know, uh, Dr. Uh, Dennis Kinlaw is a former president of, president of Asbury College. He was asked one time by a young minister about this verse. And the, this guy said to him, Dr. Kinlaw, I, I can't understand this passage. I don't know what it means when it says my kidneys instruct me in the night season. And Dr. Kinlaw said, no, of course you don't understand it. You're only 28. But someday you will. Now, you'll get that verse. If you're too young, you'll get that verse in a decade or two. But I digress. Uh, I think what David is saying here is that God awakens. He said, God awakens me in the, in the night and he assures me of his guidance and his wisdom from deep within. God deals with me with the very core of my being. And David says, I have utter confidence in God. Now, verse 8 is very beautiful. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Now, now listen to this. David was a politician. He was a king. He was a poet. He was a singer. He was a composer. But first and foremost, before any of that, David was a warrior. And, and, and this is a military turn of phrase. You have to understand that to get this because David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Now that phrase before me again uh, sounds very different in Hebrew than it does in English. Because if you say I've set the Lord before me, uh, you know, you might interpret that and say, you know, it, it means some distant landmark that I see it out there. That's my goal. I'm moving toward it. I have this out in front of me. Uh, but, but that's not what it means in Hebrew at all. It, it means uh, here, I have set the Lord directly in front of my face. And the Lord is right before me. And there's an immediacy here. So he's saying, no matter in which direction I turn, I see him. I, 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 that's no matter what I look at, no matter what I see, I see it through the immediacy of God. Therefore, if I look at my blessings, I see it through God. I see it with humility. I see it with gratitude. I see it with joy I, I, because God is before me. And I won't be swayed by the blessings because I see them through God. And if I face adversity or difficulty or conflict or po poverty or, or need or hurt or grief, I will see that also through God. And that won't destroy me either because I have set God right before me no matter which way I turn. Isn't that beautiful? That, then he says, because God is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. 
Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand the patterns of ancient warfare. Because, you see, until Alexander the Great invented a new military formation called the phalanx, uh, all, before that, all ancient warfare was fought in a straight line. David's saying, listen, I'm not trusting in the flesh. I'm not trusting in buildings. I'm not trusting in my army. I'm not trusting in prosperity. I'm not trusting in my bank accounts. He says, the Lord is at my right hand. And because the Lord is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I will not, I shall not retreat. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be intimidated. I'm not going to be turned out of the rank. I'm going to keep right on walking. I'm going to keep right on marching. I'm going to keep right on fighting because the Lord is ever before me and because he is at my right hand I shall not be moved now look at how he closes verses 10 and 11 for you not you will not leave my soul in Sheol nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption now obviously this is what we would call a messianic passage because it's it's, it has to do with the death and resurrection of the coming Messiah, Emmanuel. Now, we, we know that it does because in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, it is this very psalm that Peter quotes as, as proof, as evidence that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for. So, we, we know that this verse has to do with the Messiah. However, we also know that it has to do with David. See, every psalm can be seen as having a personal application as well as having a prophetic application. And we know this passage has to do with the Messiah, but let's see what it means to us. Well, it means this. No matter what I face, no matter how much prosperity that, that comes, no matter, no matter how, how little that I have, no matter what need I have, no matter what hurts I have, I have a transcendent view of God who is eternal. And he says, even if I die, I know that I live. See, this is the, the, the great paradox of Christianity. In losing, I win. In dying, I live. In, in giving, I gain. In surrender, I am more than a conqueror. In weakness, I am strong. In death, I'm alive. In life, I'm crucified. And David is talking about a, a New Testament reality that is, that is so far beyond his age and so far beyond the theology of his age that, it, age that it's just stunning to us. He says, Messiah will rise, therefore I will rise. Verse 11, you will show me the path of life. Your presence is fullness, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, Pleasures forevermore. That doesn't mean just long lasting. It really, it really uh, it should be translated, it means all blessings. Uh, have you ever heard of the English word satiety? Well, I'll, I'll, if you haven't, I'll, I'll give you a little education on that. It's just a word that means uh, that that is the feeling of bully, being fully satisfied, fully sated. And he says here, he says, in the presence of God, I have all that I need to be completely and utterly satisfied. David, there in that throne room alone, looking over all the cold, sterile power of economic wealth, says, God, I have you. I have you. And I'll not be dissuaded when I'm poor, nor will I be corrupted when I'm wealthy, because you're all I need. 
You're all I need. Jesus said in Luke 12, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You see what that means? It means God will provide the the blessings. You don't have to worry. Your father knows what you have need of before you even ask. Consider the lilies of the field, he says. Brooks Brothers never dreamt of suits like this. Saks Fifth Avenue never invented anything to match the beauty of the Rose of Sharon. Your father will feed you. He will take care of you so when the blessings come enjoy them you know walk under the trees and pick their fruit but don't camp there don't camp there see this is where so many Christians lose out we we lose out because we clutch at our blessings and then like yesterday's manna they become worm-eaten to us Listen, our children, for example, our children are not ours. Our children are just on loan for a little while. Ma'am, your your husband is not yours. Your husband's not yours. Ask any widow you know, the most fragile, temporary thing in the world is a husband. He'll be gone in a moment. But if you clutch at any blessing and you say, mine, mine, then you set yourself up for bitterness and loss that is unsearchable. It's all right. Enjoy the blessings. Children, enjoy them while they're here. Husbands, wives, fortune, fame, ministry, prosperity. It's okay. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. It's wonderful. Nevertheless, Jesus says, don't put your tent pegs too deep because we're all leaving here in the morning. It's like the old song that says, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My prayer is that Jesus would help us view everything, the good and the bad, and everything in between, that he'd help us view everything through the lens of eternity. All the things that we're dealing with now, all the heartache, all the difficulty, all the fear, it's not going to matter in eternity. So we can hold on to him and we can bless the Lord in the middle of our circumstances, good or bad, we can look to him and say, Lord, you are all I need. Amen. I want to just take a minute and pray for you. Lord, I just pray for my friend. And Lord, you know exactly what he's going through. You know exactly what she's dealing with. And Lord, in the middle of everything, whether blessing or, 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 or in great abundance or, or dealing with lack, Lord, I pray that you would help them all to realize that none of those things defines their value in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, you would help us to view all of life through the lens of eternity, realizing that God, the only thing that's gonna last forever is in our lives is you. So, Lord, help us to live that way. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your sustaining power when things are hard. And, God, in the middle of everything, no matter what the circumstances, we say with David, I will bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.